done what you said. This is the boy. How long you been following us? How, how long? I didn't fucking follow you. I was gonna caught this hand, I just took it, that's all. I ain't touched the boy. Take your clothes off. Oh. Take them off. Every goddamn stitch. You don't wanna do this. Do it. Alright, alright. Just take it easy. Okay, right? Yeah. right where you stand. What a roller coaster when you are so depressed by a film, and then finally Omar from The Wire shows up, and then Vigo Mortensen makes him strip at gunpoint in front of a child. So it was like a brief glimpse, for me anyways, of uh, joy in seeing uh, a beloved actor on screen, and then just back to despair. Very, and then very you have quickly. like the Robert Duvall sequence too. <laughs> oh my goes, god! I had a boy once, and he just goes, "Shh, he's gone." I think the whole, the whole thing is. I made my parents watch this movie with me. I Why would you do that? Oh wow! I took them to the theater. I was like, "You guys got to see this movie. It's gonna be, it's gonna be great. It's like really good." And we, they left just like shell shocked. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe that was a poor choice. That, that was before you had seen the film, but had read the book, correct? No, I'd already seen the movie. <laughs> what is it with you? <laughs> I was like, I like this movie so much, mom and dad. I want you to see this with me. Wow. Oh wow. my God. Welcome folks. This is Film Trace. We trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Uh, we are in our future wars season cycle. Uh, we are in what the, uh, what do you call this? The Audis, the 2000s. The Naughty Audis, absolutely. Naughty Audis. Uh, War of the Worlds uh, came out in 2005 and then the road uh we'll close out the episode coming out in 2009 we have a special guest uh megan kearns from spoiler piece theater megan introduce yourself and tell us all about yourself hello hello thank you so much for having me uh yes i'm co-host of spoiler piece theater we put out a weekly podcast where we spoil movies we don't let spoilers get in the way of good conversation about movies um so yeah and i'm also co-host of the uh, slashers podcast where we talk about the golden age of slasher films and i'm also a film writer where i write reviews of film at edge media network very cool thanks for being here thank yes. you Happy i'm excited you. Ah, the, thank you the, the triple shot of spoiler piece guests begins <laughs> i love yes. it with this episode the spoiler piece takeover <laughs> <laughs> fantastic just like the alien takeover yeah right oh god don't, um, don't, don't compare yourselves to the tripods. <laughs> but the tripods we, are cool. Oh, they're so cool. Um, <laughs> where do we begin, Chris? Where do you want to <laughs> jump into this? Because I chose this movie, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Uh, against your better judgment, you did. I chose and... both of these films. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, 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 we have to clear the air, first of all, I th- because I think you specifically chose this film, not only because it fit our theme of future wars, yes. uh, but also because you knew that I had a great, great distaste for it. That's true. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, what we like to do is often kick off with our personal histories of these movies. Correct. Um, so we'll let, Megan, you go first. How, when's the first time you saw World of the Worlds? First time I saw War of the Worlds was in 2005 when it came out in theaters. And nice, I, you saw it in theaters. I awesome. did, and I liked 
I liked it tremendously then, and I actually liked it even more on a rewatch. God, I'm so glad we have you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be an uphill battle for me. I love it. Love it. Love it. That's great. I had the same experience. Um, so I saw it right when it came out, and I, I remember the reviews kind of being lukewarm, but I was just enthralled with the whole thing. I, it was such a spectacle to me. I was like, yeah, this is this is what I was looking for. Chris, what about you, buddy? Yeah, um, kind of the opposite. I did see it also in the theater. I um, wasn't necessarily like thrilled and excited to, um, but it definitely felt kind of like compulsory. Uh, yeah. You know, Spielberg, Tom Cruise, classic H.G. Wells story. And you uh, thinks you, you, you'd think that all the right kind of combination of factors were there. I was a huge fan of Minority Report, um, and this was them teaming back up in the same genre. And I, I did not uh, have a great um, first impression of it, uh, but I also, you know, was... Um, very, I think this was kind of the height of my pretentiousness, um, (laughs) the year we graduated college and, um, I I was deep into like exploring, you know, the, the, all, all all the pretentious stuff, French new wave, uh, uh, Russian silent cinema, blah, blah, blah. But I, I was trying to, you know, put my populist cap back on to, to just kind of enjoy. I also have a distinct memory of the film breaking down um right as uh you know we first see um the tripods and uh at first i thought it was like a gag like that was kind of built into the film that like the tripods are taking over and you know there's a break in the film but then the house lights came on and um they they told us we had to move to a different auditorium to and then we just like watched the first act again so you know, it's all uh, not only subjective at large, but also I think that was a, a frustrating way to see a movie for the first time. Um, and because I had to sit through the first act of this, uh, in my opinion, pretty phoned in and uh, Spielbergian um, trope of you know the the family unit, the the broken family unit that is. Uh, uh, has you know the drama of an entire world uh, ending hoisted upon them, and I yeah, I actually in my rewatch really enjoyed that first act per oh, uh, yeah. in part go. because I, I I wasn't um in that kind of zone. I also admit that kind of like my love for Spielberg uh, was newly found, which Dan knows because the Fablemans was one of, if not my favorite movie of last year. And uh, it was a lot more fascinating to watch war of the worlds through that lens, at least that first act, maybe even most of the second, but I still just think this movie just completely implodes upon itself. Once Tim Robbins shows up, Um, (laughs) the Tim Robbins moment. I know (laughs) it's a tough ride for everybody. (laughs) I, 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 to this day, the thing that it made me think of this time, because I don't think I had seen it. Um, I believe I watched it a second time, uh, like when it was on video or like through the Netflix, you know, mail in service or whatever. But, um, it was definitely, I think, the first time I had seen it since uh, World War Z had come out, okay, and yeah. it very much felt like a 
well, we <laughs> we ran out of money, so let's do a third act that all takes place in a single scene yeah. um, kind of thing. But uh, yeah, so complicated at best, and um, uh, just a, a really annoying um, experience at worst for me. So prove me wrong, guys, but we do need to do the thing where we kind of talk about, you know, where did this come from other than the original H.G. Wells novel? What do you got, Dan? Where, why did Spielberg want to go from adapting Philip K. Dick to H.G. Wells and keep Tom Cruise along for the ride? Uh, well, it sounds like uh, Stephen had this idea for a long time. And I think essentially ever since he read, I think in college, he'd been wanting to sort of do something with this. Uh, and then Independence Day came along in 1996 and he's basically like, ah, I can't do it now. Uh, <laughs> but then, you know, he had a chance to do it. He works with Tom on Minority Report. Um, loved that experience. Tom worked, loved uh, working with him too. And so, you know, they kind of came together and said, hey, what do you have working? What are some ideas you have? And uh, War of the Worlds just landed. And it was just sort of like, yeah, let's do this. Um, and it's, you know, I, I find that that whole genesis interesting because it's like that is such a, a rarefied air of movie production where it's sort of like, oh, you're talking about Tom Cruise and we have ideas, let's shoot him around. And then, yeah, let's do this one. And then here's, you know, $150 million, however much it costs. Um that itself lends itself to a certain type of blockbuster movie at the end of the day mm-hmm. where it's not necessarily going to be this incredibly worked over script that was like a passion project from some, you know, failed writer. <laughs> there's not like a lot of uh, there's not a ton of meat on the bones, I would say, of this story. And Steel- Spielberg actually even admits that. But he also, you know. Steven also wanted to make something different than E.T., different than Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, I think said he said something like, uh, he Alien was one of his favorite movies. Yeah. Was, uh, and he's basically like, I kind of want to do something like that. I want to do kind of a scary alien movie. And uh, we got it, at least the Spielberg version of it. Right. Um, and it's, I don't know, I... I when I was going through it, it I thought it was fascinating that it, the way this movie is lumped into his filmography is just so bizarre. 2004, we did the terminal. Uh, we did that on the show. Uh, what was that? Last season, a couple seasons ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes out in 2004. War of the Worlds Munich comes out in the same year, 2005. 2002, you had Minority Report and Catching With You Can really crammed in. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's just one of those things where... I don't know. I mean, did it feel to you, Megan and Chris, like this? Chris, you said phoned in. Phoned I in. I did. Yeah. Do you? I need you explain yourself a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And then, yeah, I am. I am curious to hear from Megan because the thing that uh, kind of frustrated me the most that really kind of stuck with me and left the the movie left a bad taste in my mouth was specifically this aspect of you know he's kind of letting all of his seams show and we talked about this a little bit with regards to the terminal and how it kind of you know in that case he was like doing the frank capra thing and in this case it does seem like he's you know leaning back on his old kind of inclinations to uh you know, everything from Jaws to Close Encounters um, to E.T., 
but trying to like do it on this grand scale. And, you know, the one aspect of the terminal, a movie I also disliked that did work for me was that it felt, you know, a little bit like this, this snow globe world to use a term that you tend to uh, come back to (laughs) Dan. And here it just feels like this bizarre combination of, you know, hitting the marks with this really interestingly designed kind of monstrous kaiju style uh, monster at the center of it. And it feels like there's, there's really no place else to go except where you would expect it to. Um, Even down to the, you know, uh, uh, the family unit uh, being marred by divorce and kind of a uh, broken down dad. That's nevertheless good at his working class job. And it feels like there's, there's only so many roads to go down in terms of predictability, in terms of like having a satisfying kind of like mainstream conclusion to the point where like the one kind of dramatic send off that happens with the the sun going off to (laughs) cornerly join the uh, (laughs) military um, defense squad uh, somehow finds his way back at the end of the story as they approach the X-Wing. Let's not think too much into it. (laughs) (laughs) But to be fair, but to be fair, as much as I love uh, the radio play of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds that Orson Welles did, and as much as I love the 1953 adaptation, those had terrible endings, too. And oh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. not that a better ending couldn't have been crafted, because I absolutely think it could have been and should have been. Um, and I, I think that that's probably the one weakness in this film, is the ending is just kind of a, you know, kind of a letdown. But I think it's so fascinating um, that you're talking about how there's really not nothing there because I have the complete opposite take on this. <laughs> and yeah. for me, so I'm, first of all, I'm such a sucker for a post-apocalyptic story. I love, 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 love this subgenre. And what I find fascinating that, that you both selected, um, you know, War of the Worlds and The Road is that these are both stories about their odysseys, about a father who's protecting his child or children, and he'll do it whatever the cost. And I think that that's a fascinating you know, trope. And I think with this, it's really interesting that we see a really, really shitty deadbeat dad. And (laughs) like, he's not a good guy. Like, yes, he has, right. (laughs) Like he has friends and he's great at his job, but he is a terrible father. Like he doesn't even know that his daughter is allergic to peanuts and is, he's making her a peanut butter sandwich. (laughs) Like it's, it is appalling. And yet he, you know, the whole reason he wants to get to Boston is because he's like, I'm a terrible dad. I need to get these kids to safety. And along the way, he realizes like, oh, shit, I care so much about them and I love them so much. I will do whatever I can to protect them. And I feel that it comes across in a very realistic way in the way that it unfolds. And so for me, I think it's really fascinating to see the end of the world momentarily because, you know, Everything's fine by the end, but the end of the world, this ap- this apocalyptic disaster event happening through the eyes of one family. I actually really like that because sometimes when, as much as I love a disaster film, when you have too many characters, yeah. I feel like you're shortchanged 
oftentimes on character development. And I feel like here we get a sense of who each of the three main characters are. And I really appreciate that. Um, So for me, it really worked. And I know that Spielberg so often is working through his own issues of, you know, divorce and, you know, estrangement from his father. And he's working through those issues in all his films. But here, I think that the combination with of that story, that very intimate story with the spectacle of a plane crashing, you know, in a community and with the, the ferry boat being overturned by the tripods and all of these huge, massive set pieces. I think it's such a propulsive and exciting film combined. These, these facets combined together make for just a really compelling watch, at least for me. Hmm. I, uh, I have a good quote about this, uh, because it's like, that was such an interesting choice in the early stages of the conception of this movie to, you know, kind of switch it from this grandiose sort of viewpoint of like sci-fi battles and all that sort of stuff down to a single family. And so I I don't know where I think this is the DGA interview he did, but he goes, I thought this was interesting. Uh, he says, I wanted this in a strange way to be sort of like a cousin to saving private Ryan in the genre of science fiction in the way that it's more a story told in a first person point of view. So I did impose limits, limits on the script and stuff like that. Uh, and like what they were going to do. I think that that is very effective. I think the first Mm -hmm. half hour of this where we get to know Ray, we get to know his kids, how much of a terrible father he is. (laughs) I mean, terrible. so bad. And, Spielberg is so good at just drawing out these little inferences and these little they're so on the nose for like people that are paying attention. But like it's good filmmaking. Like he doesn't know what to order. He the kids are ordering like hummus and he eats the hummus and he's like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> There's so many things going on there that I feel like that is such a, a Spielberg thing to do in a couple of scenes. You're telling us so much about the situation that he doesn't know much about his kids, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's not a great father. He's totally checked out. Uh, the mom is definitely raising them and the, and the stepfather. Um, uh, here's my, my only sort of like, I love the movie. It's great. But there, I, that aspect of it to me starts to fade pretty quickly, maybe about an hour in. And I would say the last part of it where it's him protecting just the daughter because the son has run off, it it loses me a little bit. Like, I would have wanted that groundwork, really, really good groundwork done on the family stuff to play out a little bit more uh, later on. Because it does, to me, becomes kind of a straightforward action flick once you get to the ferry to kind of the end. I don't know, Chris, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think perhaps one of the things that it's not Tom Cruise. I mean, he's, he's giving it his all. He's a magnetic star presence and always has been and probably always will be. But, uh, I mean, you're always going to be taking a pretty big gamble with child actors and Dakota Fanning is, you know, she's, I think grown a lot since she was a child actor. Um, but I do this, the, this kid who plays Robbie. Whoa. You're going to say you don't like Dakota Fanning in this movie. (laughs) No. Breaks. Are you kidding me? <laughs> my biggest, my bigger issue is with the uh, this guy, Ju- yeah, Justin Chatwin. Justin Chatwin. Oh yeah. Um, I, I don't know, and maybe this is, maybe I'm projecting, but like the whole like angsty teenage boy thing 
It kind of feels like you, Chris. I can say that, but you can't. <laughs> um, it, it feels it feels so uninteresting in comparison to what you guys were talking about, which made, especially you know, post Fablemans, made the 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 latest watch more interesting for me because of that you know role as a father um, yeah. that that felt strong in that first act and most of the second, but. You know, the there's a reason. There's lots of reasons why I'm not sold at all by the you know heartbreaking, you know running off with the army kind of thing. But it also just feels like really almost like kind of condescending to what I think was probably his like central audience at the time, which is like who's going to go see a big alien invasion movie like Teenage Boys, right? Yeah, and yeah. and it's very much like. I don't know. It's just like, it was so close to like propaganda. And I know this is like very much seen, especially nowadays, uh, looking back in retrospect, this post nine 11 parable type thing. Um, I, I just, I get, I, it feels oh, so that gross. Was intentional. That was actually very intentional by Spielberg. He talked sure, about that sure. in numerous interviews that he very much wanted nine 11 parallels in there. And I, th- and, and maybe that's, maybe that's part of it too. I, I, I just do not, I do not feel, I, it still feels gross. Maybe even feels more gross in retrospect. You feel like it was like a, like a rah, rah, let's invade Iraq situation. I don't know. Would it, I mean, I felt like there was definitely a kind of emphasis that I did not vibe with on this like you've got to let your son go if he wants to be a part of the the, the efforts. Let him go, which does not <laughs> vibe with Munich, which comes out the same the exact same year. year. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't know if this is just like you know a, a two sides of Spielbergian you know Americanism or what. What do you guys make of that? Yeah, uh, I definitely. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, man, go ahead. Go ahead. I definitely think you're hitting on something. I think, you know, people are complex, people are contradictory. Mm-hmm. And I definitely agree with that because I feel like Spielberg, in so many of his films, is a pacifist. But at the same time, he has this very, very obvious and overt respect for service members and for the military. Mm -hmm. And so it, to me watching this felt like a very pacifist movie, not a pro military movie, but at the same time, you're totally right. Like you've got to let me go. And the son runs off to join the military, you know, at a moment's notice, it is very pro military. So it is, they very much are at odds with each other, but I think those contradictory elements are arguably within Spielberg and within his oeuvre. Hmm. No, oh, I think yeah. it's fair. I mean, especially with you know he, him making direct reference to Saving Private Ryan and yes, how how this kind of plays into that. And but I've never really vibed with Saving Private Ryan or even Schindler's <laughs> List, to be honest. Whoa, so uh, let's not. Stop. We should have talked about our Spielberg Spielberg biases in the start. We should. <laughs> that is true. We should have. We should have. Um, I would say this like. Uh, and we haven't mentioned all the amazing things about this movie: the sound design, the visual effects. Uh, so good, Janusz uh, Kaminski, cinematographer. Yes, just like uh, it's so good. Especially, I mean, that's the thing that stood out to me um, when I saw it uh, opening weekend. And like this, it was one of those moments where I was so enthralled 
that I had to go and read every review of the movie to find the person that got the like my feeling right. And it was, and because you know this, it was Mick LaSalle, of the San Francisco Chronicle. Mick LaSalle, the San Francisco Chronicle. He was just like, I haven't felt like this since I was a 10 year old. I was like, this guy gets it. Um, and it was just, you know, I say that now and I, and I, and I watch it and I've seen this movie probably 20 times and it's still the first hour gives me that reaction. It's just a, um, full throttle science fiction, alien action bonanza. It's just so much fun. But at the same time, if I'm trying to be critical about it and think about it in different ways, especially the political side of it and this sort of post 9-11 stuff that he, you know, he was bringing up in interviews right after it came out mm-hmm. and saying, yeah, you know, I, I'm a little bit perplexed as to what he was trying to get across about that time period. He said stuff in interviews about um, American refugees experience is one of the things that he sort of came up. This is partially about the American refugee experience because it's certainly about Americans fleeing for their lives, being attacked for no reason, having no idea why they're being attacked and who's attacking them, which is sort Mm. of an, an odd statement I think to make about that whole situation. Um, I don't know, like what, looking at it now, you know, we're, you know, 22 years after 9-11 happened, a lot more has gone on in the world. What do we make of the messaging here in this movie, political messaging that is? Is there something unique, interesting that if you had to teach about 9-11 that you would show this movie and say, hey, (laughs) this is like a reaction to it? You know, like what, where do we make of all that? Because it was it was very on the nose when it came out. Now it doesn't seem so on the nose for some for me for some reason. I don't really connect it to nine eleven all that much. Really, I think because I think yeah, I think it it's grown. The shadow's grown, um, and I think to the point where that's part of why I get turned off, especially you know towards the middle, the end of the uh, middle act, is that you know we're even taking the Robbie aspect out of it. The, the thing that felt almost like, I mean, I, I don't want to use the phrase on the nose uh, derogatorily because that's kind of Spielberg's thing, but yeah. I couldn't help but just like kind of almost like, uh, I don't know, have like this weird kind of like out of body experience remembering what it felt like uh, as a college student and seeing, you know, the aftermath of 9-11 and all the political upheaval and, you know, the, the questionings of not only the Bush administration, but also, you know, every conspiracy theorist about the the root cause of both 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. But there was this moment in the film uh, that, that triggered that for me. And it was specifically that kind of almost a... There's this element that happens, I think, once again, towards the middle of Act Two, when I could not like separate myself from the way in which Tom Cruise's Ray ends up being like completely, uh, like turns into a superhero essentially, um, because you know, and you get this little glimpse of it in the opening you know, tracking shot, right. Of him being like this expert, like a shipping container, forklift, whatever operator. Um, But 
to have this kind of moment in the uh, second act where he, it's like he turns on a dime and is able to uh, like get across, like get across to the ferry, and he's able to uh, you know fend off and like just barely you know with get into the diner just before somebody else picks up the gun that fell down and they all kind of come apart at the seams out there where it's just like, I could not get on this level of these characters or this particular character. Our protagonist has somehow just managed to get away with everything and able to get this far to the point where then like when Robbie, he finally like gets separated from Robbie gets separated from his daughter also. And like the, 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 the other family is like, who, where's your parents? Blah, blah, blah. Like that felt more earned because it, 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 we're trying to depict chaos and yeah. in yeah. depicting chaos, you're going to have, you, you're not supposed to have those kind of superhero movements. So like, effortlessly from beat to beat to beat where I was like almost transported back to like a film such as independence day where I'm like, I want to get lost in this kind of escapist garbage, Mm. but it didn't, it didn't sit well with me because I was constantly going back to, you know, the, the characterization and the nine 11 parable. And I'm like, this is, it felt at odds with each other. And I think you're right, Megan, like you said earlier, any kind of contradictory elements can in many ways make a film more interesting. But for in this, in this case, mm-hmm. it was like a bridge too far for me. It became too frustrating to like continue down this path of uh, superheroism, especially with the ending where like it all magically comes, it all, it all magically turns out. Okay. <laughs> That totally makes sense. I mean, that, you know, if it doesn't work for you, and especially for its politi- political reasons and, and the way it's framing them through that lens, that completely makes sense. What I think is fascinating, though, about this, I don't think that its legacy really is within its depiction of a 9-11 parable, interestingly enough, I because you can see its influences in recent films like Jordan Peele's Nope and um, Brian Duffield's No One Will Save You. And But I, what I think I is so fascinating is that this is a theme that comes up again and again and again of a father transporting a child across a treacherous landscape. And I mean, it kind of started with like Charlie Chaplin's The Kid and the film yeah. series adaptation of the manga Lone Wolf and Cub, and even in Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. And yet we're now seeing it in so many things, including, you know, the incredibly popular TV series, The Last of Us, of the adaptation of the video game. So I think that that's kind of the legacy of it, but it is fascinating that this was crafted at a time after 9-11 and was a reaction to it for Spielberg's, you know, fears of like, you know, this chaos and who is the enemy and where is it coming from? And we don't have information and, and all of that. But I, but I, at the same time, that doesn't seem to be what has lasted and how it impacts other works of art, which is just fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that like the, the thing that did stick out to me that felt, um, definitely that was an echo of 9-11 and sort of the broader historical sort of moment is that initial attack when they come out of the ground and the church with all that kind of stuff and they start vaporizing people, which by the way, it was interesting that like 
Spielberg said no gore because it's PG thirteen. So they're like, oh, okay, let's just vaporize them. And <laughs> Which like, is more they, horrifying. Way, way worse. Just way worse. And they're like, they couldn't get it right on CGI, so they had to use sawdust. Yes. And that's how they got like that effect. And that I remember seeing that and I was like, well, obviously this is like we all watched 9-11 on TV, we all saw it happen, and you just saw people covered in this dust. And like that mm-hmm. callback was so specific. Yeah. There's even um, a, almost a shot for shot of a very famous uh, scene during 9-11 with a man holding a woman who's like crying. Uh, like yes. everybody's seen this and he does the same exact shot. I mean, like she's in the same position and everything. So, you know, I, I, that stuff to me sticks um, initially. Um, but I just think, yeah, the broader... I don't know what the politics of this movie are because I don't think that Spielberg's clear, right? I just don't think he, there's a whole like interview thing about him uh, talking about the politics of, and he's basically like, um, what did he say? I tried to make it as open for interpretation as possible without having anybody coming out with a huge political polemic in the second act of the movie. (laughs) Although Chris thinks otherwise. What? (laughs) Uh, He literally says this. Uh, I think there's there are politics certainly underneath some of the scares and some of the adventure and some of the fear, but I really wanted to make it suggested and not that everyone could have uh not that everyone could have their own opinion, but I certainly think I gave you enough rope to hang me with. <laughs> like, I okay. I, I'm gonna get off the politics thing, but it's just like it is to me so fascinating about Spielberg is that when he tries to get political it tends to not work so well besides Munich where it is really fascinating in a really layered nuanced take uh, on that whole world and situation. But here to me, it's like, I go back to the little kid, the sci-fi movie, the popcorn matinee. And he even says this, he goes, uh, and in one of these interviews, he goes, well, I think that science fiction is not a subconscious thing at all. Science fiction to me is a vacation. It's a vacation away from all the rules of narrative logic. And I mean, that's kind of, to me, what makes this movie special. I think what, uh, why it has a special place in sort of my, um, in my heart, I guess, is that it, uh, it is such a, a little, I, I feel like Spielberg is a little kid with a camera. Like he used to be growing up with this movie. Yeah. It feels like he has his little play sets that he had that he was shooting on whatever 16 millimeter, what do they have back then? And it, it just feels like he's blowing things up and it's really fun and interesting. Anything else that he tries to do here to me doesn't work so well. And he clearly to that point in terms of like, you know, the erector set and should make, you know, filming Legos or whatever he was doing back then. Uh, he had no ending. I think he even admits that in one of the interviews. He's like, I didn't know how to end this thing. Um, <laughs> and you know, and it's like David Cope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, I don't know. So I have such, here's the thing about it. There are sequences in this that are some of my favorite, like sequences in action movie or a sci-fi movie. And I can't really, the other stuff doesn't take any of it away from those, those scenes. And it, some of these scenes are like, when he opens the door and the plane has crashed, that entire sequence to me, I could watch that a hundred times. It's stunning. It's Ugh. just like everything about it is so meticulously done. And I must say too, the 
the the actors playing these side roles are phenomenal like the newscaster it like makes that entire scene and like adds so much layer to the experience as a viewer they're like oh this is way bigger than like we think it's it's an entire world and all these things are happening and great narrative reveals to the plot about how they get shot down through the lightning all that sort of stuff and it there's like my point is is that spielberg has so many flourishes in here that are at the top of his game in terms of action sci-fi that like as much as i want to knock it for being like lukewarm uh milk toast political messaging if that's not really having to me the emotional narrative payoff at the end with the family stuff it doesn't really work for me by the end none of it seems to matter to me mm. i don't know like <laughs> am i being too soft on it chris uh, meg what do you think do you think i'm being too soft on it i mean I yeah don't. I was like, I don't. <laughs> you knew what answers you were going to get with that. It's a soft, it's called a softball, guys. <laughs> Megan, I'm going to let you as the guest have the last word, but I do have to just kind of respond to Dan. And first off, just to give you credence, uh, yeah, I totally agree about the newscaster and like some of those smaller elements to the point where I almost wished that they had leaned into it a little more as sure. more of a overt homage to Orson Welles radio drama yes. and kind of do a play on the whole, you know, broadcast television aspect of it. Um, that's Roz Abrams, by the way. She's like the actual was during that time period, the Manhattan local news anchor. Um, nice. And so, yeah, she was a complete natural. And I think that was one of the more effective uses in, you know, uh, cinema over the past 20 years that has uh, have managed to make that kind of like real life, local journalism feel, feel real. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I do think overall, I completely uh, agree that there are elements and images and visuals that really feel like they could, maybe that's reason enough for the like movie's existence and that people get so much mileage out of that, myself included, especially when those tripods first show up. By the way, I do have to, I, I would be remiss not to say that, uh, you know, not just looking at the family stuff post Fablemans, but like <laughs> he literally refers to these, you know, alien kaiju devices as tripods and knowing how we now know how he feels and has felt since he was a kid about, you know, his obsession with uh, cinema and movie making as a, uh, as kind of a, a, a hobby that ended up destroying his own you know, relationships with his family was it's yeah. interesting in retrospect, but I do um, really feel still pretty strongly, especially with the reveal of the actual aliens within the Kaiju at the end, you know, Tim Robbins, notwithstanding um, <laughs> is that there is, there's this piece of it. I think you're totally right, Megan, making the parallels in terms of inspiration with Jordan Peele's Nope and no one will save you. Uh, I love Nope, but I did, not not really get with uh no one will save you and i think it comes back to this kind of um insistence on this humanoid alien thing that i think just has not worked for years and i think still did not work very well in 2005 to even to the point where the you know it was it felt kind of like a letdown uh after these big monstrous tripods and that excellent sound design with uh, you, you know the whirring sirens overhead that's iconic now yeah. um, even for those of us that dislike the film um and so i it's it's one of those 
it's you know one of the hardest things i think for for movie lovers uh like myself where it's like there's so many pieces that work but if i'm going to be left with this kind of gaping hole in the final act both with the family stuff and with this alien stuff and like this like giant uh you know poorly um metallicized phallus traveling through the (laughs) basement um does does not feel uh as up to snuff as so much of what came before it and it just feels like this overall letdown um but maybe maybe my movie theater had the right idea by just having it cut um right by the first act and yeah maybe i'll do that myself next time i i throw this on and be like oh yeah i know how this one goes and it ends right when the tripods show up the end (laughs) (laughs) or maybe when tim robbins shows up (laughs) yeah right before that um what do we should we transition over to the road i don't know yeah. Megan. give us your thoughts on did you see the road when it came out did i no i actually didn't this was a first time watch for me I oh, tr- i'm, I'm so too. sorry oh I'm i love so it sorry yeah. both of you. i tried reading uh cormac mccarthy's novel of it years ago and yeah. got about three pages in mm. and that was it and yeah so this was a first time watch so oh wow uh yeah <laughs> Wow, it's it's a tough one. It is. (laughs) Yeah, I can't even imagine because I knew because I had read the book before and I knew all about his work just from literature stuff. And oh, my God, I mean, like Blood Meridian is so much more disgusting in this book um <laughs> yep but yeah so that's, yeah, that's one of his tamer books. books yeah yeah it's actually pretty tame um yeah so give me your initial thoughts because i've seen it like five six seven times how why out. how okay yeah <laughs> well we can, we can let dan defend himself later yeah you guys go ahead you guys give me your initial thoughts on it megan go ahead all right. Um, I'm kind of trying to come up with, I'm trying to distill my initial thoughts. So I, I really like bleak, grim stories. Um, I love Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. But, and I love Michael K. Williams and I do love that you played that clip of Michael K. Yeah. Williams cause he's so great. I had a lot of difficulty with this mm-hmm. and I think, my so the the landscape looks fantastic and i know so much of it was actual real like not sets like they went you know went to pittsburgh and so much of it like kind of looked like very run down and they used like you know an abandoned highway and so you know a lot of it is not you know cgi or or sets or anything like that it's actual real places and it feels real and there's an authenticity to that that I think comes through and it very you know with all of the ash and all of the gray it very much kind of feels like a black and white film and it's a very strike it's very striking that way and it's cinematography which really resonated with me but I'm watching this and I'm like okay so the guy's obsessed with his son he loves his son he's trying to get his son to the coast and everybody's terrible and he's losing his mind. Okay. And he thinks people are following him. And guess what? Surprise, they are. And so I just, I liked this conceptually a lot more than I did in its actual execution. And I think the thing for me is that if you're going to be so restrained in your dialogue, you have to really nail 
all of your visuals. You have to nail your character development. And for me, I, I felt very removed and it felt very emotionally distant. And I just kind of felt like a little hollow. And so it was, this is not a bad movie by any means, but I didn't get the emotional connection and resonance that I was craving, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I I would go uh, maybe even a step further and say that this was a bad movie by many means. Um, (laughs) There we go. (laughs) I, oh my gosh, Dan, I, you know, you made it. I should have thought about this because like, you know, your father, now it's different. It's going to feel different. (laughs) Well, this is the first time watched for me too. That's what I'm saying because you've never seen it before. Oh my God. And I I purposefully... I purposefully avoided it um, because I was such a fan of the book and uh, I really just thought that there was no way. And I, and John Hillcoat, he's not a bad director. He, uh, the proposition, his Western um, yeah. with Guy Pierce is one of my favorite modern Western movies. Um, and so I was, I, I, it, it perhaps was not that I was avoiding it cause I thought it was going to be bad. It was more of a like, I I had a very kind of visceral reaction, like I think a, a lot of people did when discovering Cormac McCarthy at a you know a certain impressionable age. Uh, yeah. For those of us that were readers, and I really, I really f- did not want to kind of experience that kind of misery that was like visualized in front of me. I, it was very much, and I and I kind of like it's you know, No Country for Old Men was a miracle that, but also like of all the d- filmmakers to adapt McCarthy, it made sense that the Coen Brothers are the only ones that have arguably been able to do it um, successfully uh, because it, his style is so kind of built into that kind of monologuing narrative voice, and so the Coen Brothers. Ca- clearly knew that and pretty much removed it without, you know, with the exception of Tommy Lee Jones in certain parts, but especially for this novel, the road, the man at the center of it is such like a avatar for Cormac McCarthy. Right. And so like by placing Viggo Mortensen, a very capable actor, I was, he was like at the top of his game right around this time. Eastern, oh, you know, yes. performance and Eastern Promises is still one of my favorites of all time. And so it just, it seemed like so much of like a potential, like a uh, crucible of um, terrible possibilities where I would <laughs> not only get disappointed because it was my, you know, one of my f- favorite authors not only yeah. at this point because it was one of my favorite actors but also like the you know hill coat and you got nick wave and nick cave and warren ellis doing the score and i was also super into their music and comic books at the time and it just felt yeah it felt, felt too much like a, a, a pressure cooker situation and so when i finally you know time had passed and i had kind of forgotten that it existed and then you remind me it does by putting it in our spreadsheet for this series of episodes. And so I was really kind of cautious, but also kind of, you know, especially, you know, uh, nearing 40 and saying like, okay, fuck it. Every, anything goes now. Um, yeah. and I think you're right, Dan, uh, that like being a dad now and kind of seeing 
this whole story unravel in this like kind of very strange fragmented way and arguably very beautiful way but also is interesting like the guy who shot it uh javier aguirre's robe um was also the guy that was he had done the others and a lot of other very beautifully shot and Mm -hmm. interestingly like non-traditionally shot films he also was the guy that they ended up using for the majority of the twilight movies right around the same time you've got a big twilight fan i know and you know there is that like you were saying megan that kind of distinctive like nearly black and white look i mean mm-hmm. color correction was a curse to 2000 cinema in general but you have a really kind of so much to chew on and yet it i think you're right megan it still feels like it, it it grabs you in pieces, but ultimately never congeals. And yes, it, it's really unfortunate because there are some striking images in this movie, and I love that it's all shot in location. Especially because I think if any, you know, green screen CGI nonsense would have been done, it would have made it even worse. So, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, talking it's... through this all. Thank you for letting me process, guys, because I don't think I, I hated it. <laughs> we say you hated it i oh, know i don't think i did now that no, i think I'm, yeah now that well, i'm processing no but I it's think... complicated because that's yeah. what I, mean. I felt complicated about this film i was like there's part yeah very similarly i'm like there's parts that i really love there's parts i really don't what's mm-hmm. happening what am i feeling yeah so no i i completely get it <laughs> yeah it's i think the and one of the reasons that I picked it, I mean, because I love Cormac McCarthy. He's one of my favorite authors by far. And But what I love about him and what I love about this movie specifically, I don't think it's like a perfect film. I don't think it's a masterpiece. But what it captures is the spirit of him as an author and how he thinks about the world. Mm-hmm. And his viewpoint mm-hmm. of the world is very, very stark, brutal, violent and like in thinking about the theme of future wars what we're really asking authors directors whoever is to think about what they actually think about humanity and what they're going to do and Cormac mccarthy does not have good answers that we want to hear right and this movie actually captures that thought process that if you know i think we're, we can make an assumption here what has happened is a nuclear winter there's some sort of massive nuclear war that has happened and the earth is basically dying and what would human beings do in that situation where the film to me fails is that in cormac's writing despite this brutal awful landscape in these disgusting vile people that inhabit it there's still this very almost bizarre sense of hope in his work yeah but i didn't really get that in the movie uh there is at the end obviously guy pierce shows up um and he's got a family and they have a dog and it's like this so bizarre um and he i think that's what the film is missing to me it gets the brutality right Right. like that scene where they they walk into the house and then they go down to the basement that i mean that felt pretty close to the book from what i remember that at least the feeling of it like this is unbelievable this is such a this is so inhumane this is how could people Mm -hmm. do this but that's the whole that's karmic's part is that we should never 
question the depths of awfulness that human beings can do to each other. Never. <laughs> right. So the, the, the movie gets that. It just misses this. It, but and rightly so, it would miss that because that's the magic of Cormac's writing. Uh, I just don't. The film couldn't really capture. That, I don't think. Um, but I do think, you know, in terms of traditions of like, um, you know, thinking about future war and how people view, um, uh, humanity and how it functions, there is a really, this is part of like the Romero, George Romero sort of school of thought that, uh, if anything major goes wrong, we're just going to eat each other essentially. Right? <laughs> like that's kind of like kind of the viewpoint. And, and that's one of the reasons why I picked it because I think it has one of the more, cynical viewpoints of uh, of the human race than yeah. any of the other movies that we're looking at i think it's a good it's good representation you know what i mean <laughs> the, the representation of awfulness yeah i, I mean <laughs> you're kind of right dan i i really think that like because I, I, I was kind of doing the thing that I'm very guilty of, and I th I'm sure many people are that like read the book and then see the movie where it's like, I was so like relentlessly in the dumps that be just because I had seen, had read the book, I was waiting for them to like find the bunker full of food. And yeah, so it was like totally. very gratifying when that event that finally happened because it was, it's like this much needed respite from uh, the bleakness of it all. And I do, like you were saying, Megan, I like, I very much find myself drawn to like these bleak visions of post-apocalyptic mm -hmm. damage. Um, and still having like that hopefulness um, in front of it or, right. you know, uh, a glimpse in the darkness kind of thing. And so I'm curious what you guys thought, because especially Dan, cause you've seen it multiple times now, um, <laughs> where is it that this went wrong? Because like, I think that all the ingredients are there. I got even to the point where like, I love Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, but like their music still like felt too much it felt like it didn't yeah like often didn't right yeah and i mean it, it's it's one of those things where it's is it as simple as a novel has a singular voice and so when it hits it hits hard and perfectly and it's maybe rarer for that to happen in cinema because it's such a like teamwork kind of uh art form or is it that there was just like there was th there was no way to like successfully do this because it was so much this kind of like cormic worldview and you knew that he was not going to have anything to do with making the movie so no yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just kind of like we're you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't kind of thing i don't know Megan, what do you think I think that's a really great point that you're bringing up because I often think that you can and should judge a book and a film, its adaptation, very differently. I don't yeah. think you should have to read a book in order to understand a film. I yeah. think both should, you know, stand on their own. Um, but having said that, I think it is really interesting what you're saying about an author is a singular you know, artist. And uh, despite, despite auteur theory, you know, films are very much a collaborative effort yeah. and very much a team, um, process. And I don't 
No. As someone who has not read the book, I'm only going on the film and it didn't work for me either. So I have nothing to compare it to the way that you both do where you're talking about, you know, this beautiful language and, you know, this beautiful, you know, the the point of view of Cormac McCarthy and I and this sense of hope, even in the bleakest of times, no matter how despicable and disgusting everything gets, you know, there's still this core of hope. And I do think that it needed better writing. I think it needed, and I don't mean better writing than Cormac McCarthy, but a better adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, sometimes you, you need to add different language, so, you know, to get to the spirit of the book. Sometimes you need to add more of it and not necessarily through narration, but through character interactions. So I think for me, that's where it went wrong, that it, it needed more emotion. And I don't mean from the actors, because I think they're doing a splendid job. But I think from the writing, it just, it, at least for me, it needed more. Yeah, I feel like it it tried to be too faithful to the book. Yes. A book doesn't translate yeah, yeah. to a film. Like film is just a totally different medium. And I, to- I absolutely agree with you. It needed more character interaction. We needed more even more dialogue. I hate to say that because the book is so sparse. Right. Like <laughs> yeah, it's like it's just a different it's a different animal. And I think like also to kind of in addition to that I I will agree with the statement that I just don't think in this case Cormac's viewpoint is so uh, I would say specific and also unique that like they just they they missed a part of it they just missed it like they got about eighty percent of it but they missed the last twenty percent but the brilliance of his work is the last twenty percent like yeah. anybody can write a brutal book about how horrible human beings are it's really not that difficult to do just read the news right um like so true and so sad (laughs) right it's very sad but yeah i think ultimately here it's just um they just didn't they didn't like capture like the the sort of um the undertones or whatever of what cormac was going for because yeah, I think at the end of the day, and it's like one of the reasons why I took my parents to see it is like, oh, you got to watch this. This it's so it's so brutal and awful and you know depressing, but it's also like really uplifting at the same time. But they see the movie, it's like, no, it's just kind of really depressing. And like, yeah, at the end, I guess he's gonna be okay, but they're all gonna die anyways, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but oh, like Cormac would say, well, yeah, who cares though? But that doesn't that's not hopeful. You know, it's a whole thing. So I think yeah, the nuance is really missed here um but i also love the juxtaposition of this movie versus war of the worlds yes <laughs> it's like, i do too <laughs> it's like oh hey this is one version of the future yeah. and here's another this is how many means are like spielberg like um like tips his toe into this sort of cynical viewpoint but he can never really go there no jumps right back out yeah he can't I mean, right, it's interesting like, you you brought up the the comparison of Last of Us, uh, Megan, because yeah. I I was thinking about that a lot re- watching the road, absolutely, um, yeah. and and you can definitely see like kind of this middle ground that the the Last of Us adaptation kind of falls between like the spectacle of Spielberg and the you know overwrought bleakness of <laughs> the road and Cormac McCarthy. So it's I I think it, you had. But I also think like the 2000s were a crazy time because you had a a lot of reasons to feel both ways to 
kind of allude back to what you mentioned about contradictions, um, Megan, there's this Mm -hmm. real strong, it's messy. And I don't think that either of them work, but like, there's enough like meaning to be found in it that it really shows that kind of, uh, you know, wide spectrum of (laughs) hope and hopelessness that, uh, kind of encapsulates the, the post nine 11 America. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, any we, final thoughts before we do? We have trivia. Yes, we got trivia at the end. We forgot to to tell you, Megan. I hope you're ready. It's, it's I am. I, I have listened. Oh, I nice. was ready. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's dive into Let's do some trivia. Let's, let's, let's get... Let, we need some... This is the hope in the darkness. Trivia is the palate cleanser of this yeah. double yeah. feature downer. <laughs> okay, so these are all other films from the 2000s decade that fit into this theme of future wars of uh the kind of either actual conflict or aftermath of you know future conflicts and typically some kind of science fiction element either uh suggested or um overt and i'm gonna give you five keywords or phrases from the film especially as it relates to uh either the concept of future wars or you know the unique kind of bullshit that writers come up with to create these post-apocalyptic worlds and the first person to guess the film as i name and list the keywords and phrases gets the point and best out of five wins are you ready let's do it ready number one safe house police state transit papers oh minority Mm. report oh good guess no no yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, children of men. Yeah, it was children of men. You got yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Which I was yes. thinking as we were talking about this, man, that would have been a great double feature with the road. Yeah. I, know. Oh, I agree. I love children of men. Oh, it's, <laughs> so good. it's such a it's good so movie. Good. But uh, we did, so good. did we did we do an episode back before we changed formats? Oh, we might have done. Oh, we did do an episode, Children yes. of Men. Yeah, back uh, in the okay. day. Whatever. Um, Let's start repeating. Yeah, we, we got it, right? We, <laughs> We're around the movies. That's a rewatchable one for sure. Okay. Uh, next one <clears throat> Tractor Beam, Module Dropship. Oh. Multi- Sorry, keep go going. No, go ahead. No, go, go for it. Take no, a guess. No, no, I don't think that's no. right. No. Okay. <laughs> Multinational, <laughs> Multinational United. Oh, vivisection vivisection <laughs> prawns oh it's um district nine good work yeah. dan that's right which i've never seen <laughs> what oh, yeah. oh my gosh. well i uh, have seen it so i'm doing terribly at this game <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, this one the this one is a little bit of a deep cut, but I I think you might get it. Uh, it definitely has become way more well known uh, twenty year twenty odd years later. Um, the underground katana fight tetragrammaton huh? <laughs> libria. Oh equilibrium yeah good work dan nice. actually i so i started this wake forest film society yeah when i was uh, there and i that was our first movie oh my god what a what a first film and like five people showed up and they're like what was that <laughs> yeah. why are we watching trash 
Yeah, um, it's not good. <laughs> not good. Uh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't call this one a deep cut, but it's also trash. Here we go. Oh, oh. Um, also trash. <laughs> Chechen battlefield. Paladins. Oh. Telekinesis. <laughs> High tension wires. And teleporting. Teleporting. Looper? No. <laughs> no. Good <laughs> good guess. Though. It's a very similarly titled film. Oh. <laughs> About time? No, that was no. <laughs> well, Okay. No, I this movie is way more forgotten than I had thought, perhaps. Um it was it, it's the other than the obvious. It's Hayden Christian's top oh, jumping box. There you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what Not I was thinking me. of. I was thinking of Jumper, but, yes, but I you said, said Looper. Looper. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> Whatever, you know what I meant. All right. All right. And last but not least, uh, this, and this is, I'm sorry, Megan, heads up. This is just like a easy alley oop for Dan, just because I can't not mention it on the no show. No worries. Um, <laughs> internet censorship, mm. neo Marxism. Wait, what? The introduction of the draft. Oh, Southland Tales. <laughs> there we go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which we must do an episode. Megan, have you seen Southland Tales? I have not. It's been oh on my, my list for God. a while. You should do that. Do you like oh. Donnie Darko? Did you see Donnie I Darko? I did see Donnie Darko, and I do like it. Yeah. Perfect. You're the perfect audience. Uh, so get out there and see it, because it's oh a real gosh. cult classic. Nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. It's uh. basically unwatchable, but also brilliant. <laughs> Also brilliant, brilliant and unwatchable. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for it, yeah, in case nutshell. you didn't know, that's that's Dan in a nutshell. Contradictions. <laughs> um, what do you all have coming up on uh, Spoiler Piece? Oh my God, what do we have coming up on Spoiler Piece? I don't even know. That's ridiculous. Um, we're watching <laughs> Fried Bread Face and Me, and no, cool. we are covering Poor Things. Yeah. Poor oh, things. nice. Mm-hmm. So oh. Well, you're, give me a quick thought on poor things. What do you think? It's great. Yeah. It's weird. It's great. It's, there's lots of sex and it is a fascinating film. It looks so cool. Like one of the coolest trailers and visuals. I was like, what is this? I can't wait. I think cinema can't be weirder. (laughs) Here comes Yorgos Lanthimos. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much. It's been a blast having you on, Megan. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, absolutely. And then we'll, uh, what are we back with, Chris? I got to go to the, pull up the schedule. What are we doing? Oh, yeah, we're uh, jumping into the 90s. 90s Matrix, Starship Troopers in the 90s. With doing Evan. The 80s. Yes, with Evan. Yeah. Uh, and then David shows up for the 80s, Terminator and Aliens. My favorite uh, film of all time. Nice. Yeah, finally, and we're talking about good it. movies. And then we get... <laughs> <laughs> right. Then we get really weird in the seventies. Have you oh, watched man. the films for the seventies yet, Chris? No, no. I'm about okay. to. Jump I, into I, I won't even tease it. I won't oh, even I tease like, it. I want to know what the films from the seventies are. The Omega are. Man and Zardos. Zardos. <laughs> Zardos. I don't know if you guys. Wow. It is one of the strangest movies I've ever seen in my life. And I'm so <laughs> glad that I chose it. I'm so oh, glad I'm that sorry. I chose it. All right, uh, Megan. Thanks again, and thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Bye.